0: So you have to do things like go to bed, and you have to brush your teeth, and you uh, can't play video games all night long whenever you want to play video games, and you have to be nice to your brother and sister. That's a hard thing about being a kid, right? So let me ask a question here. What, what do you think would happen if you were put in charge of your own life? Now, I'll be careful here, parents. Yeah, oh boy, here we go. If you were put in charge for your life, okay, so here's, here's what it would look like. You don't have to brush your teeth if you don't want to brush your teeth. You don't have to go to bed when you don't want to go to bed. You can play video games all the time. You can be as mean as you want to to your brother and sister. You don't have to go to school. You could live your life for you. Now, here's the question. Do you think that would be a good life? <laughs> Do you think you would be happy? After like a couple hours. No, the reality is is that that would not lead to a good and flourishing life. And sometimes it's hard to believe that as a kid. And that's why God gives you parents. Because they know that all the time. We have been in a series this, this summer. And we're going to finish it today on wisdom. Biblical wisdom. Been looking at the book of Proverbs. And what we've said is that wisdom is really God's vision of the good life. And like, he should know what leads to a good life because he made us and he made life and he made all things. And so wisdom is this God-given ability and skill through his word that we actually get the ability to learn what is the good life. That's what we all want, right? We all want the good and beautiful and flourishing life. But here's the problem. We live in a world that is constantly luring us away with rival visions of the good life. We're being constantly led away with messages and temptations that are saying, this will cause you to flourish. This will be the good life. And essentially, from the perspective of the world, it's to live for yourself. The world is constantly telling us, listen, if you you live for you and your family alone, that's going to lead to the best life. If you make comfort and security and personal happiness, your highest goals, you're going to have a good life. If you seek to just live in the best places and and do the best things and have the greatest experiences, that's going to make for a good and flourishing life. But the Bible comes to us through wisdom and gives us a vision of the good life that is utterly at odds with that of the world. You know what the Bible says at heart is the good life? Living for something beyond yourself. That's actually what we're made for. Do you believe that that is actually what will make you happy? That if you live a sacrificial life, and that you put your own interests underneath a greater cause in your life, that you're going to have a more full and satisfying life. That can be hard to believe, can't it? But that is what wisdom tells us. We are called to live for something bigger than ourselves. We're called to live with purpose and with meaning. And so the question is, what is that? What is that purpose that we're called to, that we've really been made for in the world? And that's what we'll see as we take a look at our verses today. Here's what we're going to see. The good life, the good life is living for justice. Living for justice, it's a life of justice that is motivated and driven by the gospel. That's the good life. A life lived for justice. And we'll talk about what that means. So the first verse we're going to look at is twenty-nine, seven that uh, Stephanie read for us here. And now one of the things we see in this verse, if we could bring that verse up here. Uh, one of the things that you'll see is we're going to take a look at this verse. One of the things we see in the verse is that we see a comparison, a contrast between the life of the righteous and the life of the wicked. Now righteous in the book of Proverbs refers to the wise and the wicked refers to the fool. And so this is a definition for us. What does a righteous person look like? That's kind of a churchy word. What does it mean to be righteous? And so this verse is explaining that for us. What does a righteous person look like? And here's how it describes it here. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Now, one of the things we've said before is in talking about this concept of righteousness and wickedness, which are huge concepts in the Bible, and they're kind of churchy words that sometimes we use them or we hear them and we're not sure what they really mean. But the best definition that you can imagine for righteousness is this, is from my Hebrew professor who was kind of like Moses. I think he was a contemporary Moses. He was about 150 whenever he taught me, Bruce Walkie. But here's what he said, and he summarized righteousness this way. He said, righteousness is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of the community. Did you get that? Righteousness is irreducibly concerned with others. With the community, it it understands that I exist not just for my own interest, but I exist to live for the needs of those around me. Now, wickedness, on the other hand, is just the very opposite. A wicked person is one who disadvantages the community for their own advantage. A righteous person is willing to hurt themselves. They're willing to suffer. They're willing to give up their own preferences and rights for the good of the community that they live in. And a wicked person, on the other hand, goes about life taking for others so that he might advance. That's at the heart of what it means to be righteous and wicked. And we see that borne out even in this verse. Now, as it says here, the righteous care about justice for the poor. That Hebrew word translated care means more than just, you know, kind of think about it from time to time. And it it means to get personally involved in it. It means to make this your cause. It means to go about studying it and understanding it and giving your life to it. So a righteous person gets personally involved in justice for the poor. So the question is, what does that mean? What does justice for the poor mean? We see that term used all over the place in the Bible. It's a huge concept in the Bible, justice. Now whenever we think about justice, what do we think of? We think of punishment. Right? If we think about the American government, the Justice Department of our government, what are they concerned with? They're focused on executing the laws in punishment. That's what we think of whenever we think about executing justice. Whenever we come to the Bible, this concept of justice certainly includes that, but it's far more broad. Whenever the Bible talks about justice, most of the time what it is talking about is caring for the poor. It's talking about taking up the cause of the vulnerable. It's talking about uh, being a defender and a protector of widows and orphans. It's talking about uh, serving and lifting up the needy. It's talking about defending the rights of the immigrant. What? That's a little odd to us, isn't it, in our culture right now? that the Bible would actually talk about our responsibility to defend the rights of immigrants. That doesn't seem to fit so often with our theology, right? But that is what the Bible refers to whenever it talks about justice. That's what it's referring to. Now, whenever we think about those things, we think about mercy, and it certainly includes mercy. But from the perspective of the Bible, it's not just mercy, it is justice, Because it is their due. See, if you boil the word justice down to its core, it essentially means giving people their due. And from the perspective of the Bible, every single human being has immense worth and value because they're the image of God. Every single human being, no matter what they look like, no matter what they've done in their life... Uh, no matter what color their skin is or where they're from, no matter any of those things, if they are a human being, they have immense value and therefore they have claims and rights by virtue of God. They have the right to be able to flourish in life, to be able to have access to opportunities, to not be oppressed, to be able to live a life that honors and glorifies God. And so the Bible is so concerned with how people... Especially those who are vulnerable and powerless are exploited by those who are in power. That's not something we often think about because most of us are in the majority. Most of us don't know the experience of being disempowered and being oppressed. So sometimes it's hard to even know that that even takes place. But as you look at human history, you see this is the story of the world. It's a part of the brokenness of the world. That the powerful exploit the weak. We see these categories of people that pop up over and over and over in the Word. Sometimes they've been called the quartet of the vulnerable. Four categories of people. The poor, the orphan, the widow, and the alien or the immigrant. Four categories of people that pop up all the time. And so often they're talked about as being near to God's heart, at the heart of His focus and what He wants His people to be focused on. Now, why would those groups of people find their way into this category. Because most often, those are the most vulnerable in any society. They're the people who most easily and most often end up getting taken advantage of and exploited and oppressed. So we see over and over and over that those are the people that God calls His people to be focused on and to be caring for and to be defending their rights and taking up their case. Now here's the question, why is that? Why is it that those people are so near to God's heart? Why is it that God's primary call to us is to live a life of justice? And the answer is because it's so near to his heart. We're going to look at two more verses here, 1431 and 1917. If we can bring those up here. Look at these here, and here's what I want you to see as we just kind of look over these verses real quick. Notice how God identifies himself... With the poor and the needy. He literally identifies himself with them. Let's watch what we see here. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. 1917, first part of the verse. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. You see what he's saying there? Whatever you do to these people, you're actually doing to me. If you oppress the poor, you're actually oppressing God. That's what he's saying. If you are kind to the poor, if you give to the poor, you're actually giving to God. That's, those are stunning statements. God literally in those verses is identifying himself with these groups of vulnerable people. In, the, in Proverbs, poor kind of represents a larger category of the needy. And so God is saying here, how you treat those groups of people is actually how you're treating me. When you see them, you're seeing me. God is identifying himself with them. Jesus does the same thing. One example is Matthew 25, parable of the sheep and goats. Jesus tells the parable about the judgment day, and he's having a conversation with these people. And he says, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was sick and you helped me. And they say to him, what are you talking about? When did we see you hungry and, and give you something to eat? When, when did we see you a stranger? When did that happen? And Jesus said, listen, I'll tell you the truth. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. What is Jesus doing in that, in that parable? The same thing that Proverbs is doing. He is identifying himself with the most vulnerable. That's who I am. When you see them, you're seeing me. Whatever you do to them, you're doing to me. He's so near to them that whatever, however you treat them is how you're treating him. Now think about this for a minute. However you introduce yourself, however you identify yourself, is really what's most important to you. If you were to come to me, if I was to come into a group of people and they were to say, hey, Hutch, introduce yourself to everybody, what am I likely going to say? I'm probably going to talk about the things that are most important to me. I'm going to say, well, you know, here's what you need to know. I'm married to Ashley. Let me tell you about my wife. And, and I've got five kids now. Let me tell you about my kids. That's probably what I'm going to talk about. Why do I do that? Because I'm going to identify myself with what is dearest to my heart, to what's most important to me. You see what God's saying here? You want to know the heart of God, the very heart of his character, He says, this is who I am. You want to get to know me? You know what I'm like? I'm a defender of widows and orphans. It's rooted in my character. It's what I'm about. It's the deepest thing to my heart. You see, that's why this justice thing is so huge for us as God's people. Because it's huge for God. It's who He is. It's His mission in the world. To bring about justice. So, let's get practical for a minute. What does that mean? What does it mean practically to live a life of justice? Let me say this, just as a church, first of all, that there are a number of uh, avenues in which we as a church are involved in justice in Dade County. And we happen to find ourselves, God has put our church in the middle of a county that needs a lot of justice. There's a lot of poverty in this community. There are a lot of people who are disempowered. There are a lot of people who don't have access to opportunity. There are a lot of people who are suffering in poverty. And so we believe that as a church, we are called to advocate and to live for justice in this community. We have a number of avenues as a church. One of those is faith and finances. In the winter, we do a class for people where we walk with 12 weeks with folks and we literally empower them to be able to take control of their finances and advance in their life. And we come alongside them and support them in that. It's a huge avenue. We have a thing that, uh, in November that we participate in this community called the Inspire Weekend, where we are investing in young people age 18 to 25 in Dade County and trying to equip and empower and inspire them to rise up Out of the situations that they find themselves in. That's justice. We're doing justice. Our deacons as a church. Are actively involved in coming alongside people in the community. And helping to empower them to rise up out of their situation. So that's an avenue for all of us as a congregation. It's not just the work of our deacons. Their job is to help us get involved with people in the community. And so another way to help in that regard is that if you hear of needs in the community, come to us. Let the deacons know. We want to get involved in people's lives. So this is all justice, all of these things that we're doing. But I want to talk about two kind of very practical, broad ways that we can live out justice in our everyday life. And one is to simply be the friend of a person who is vulnerable. Let's pull up verses 14, 20. And, uh, and the next one here. Yep, 1420 and 19.4. Look at what we see here. As Proverbs gives us an understanding about the reality of poverty, of neediness, of the vulnerability that comes with, along with that. And notice in particular how it involves isolation. That's at the core of poverty. Look at what it says. The poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends verse 21 wealth attracts many friends but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them maybe you've noticed this reality in your life but there's a natural inclination to want to be friends with people of influence and wealth and connections it's just natural why is that because it offers us an opportunity to move up right so the reality is is that people of resources tend to have lots of friends Because people can benefit from them. But here's the reality if you're a poor person. Nobody wants to be your friend. Because you got nothing to offer but needs, we think. So what so often happens is that people in poverty become isolated. They don't have friendships. They don't have networks of people to help them. You know, for most of us, our safety net in life is our connections of friends and family. We have people in our life where if something happens to me, there's probably a lot of people who are going to get concerned and jump in to help. But if you're a poor person, you don't have that. Hank Williams Jr. said, when you're down and out, you don't get many calls. Great theologian there. He's right. When you're poor, people ain't coming in to help you. You got nobody. You're isolated. And moreover, it points out this reality of the shunning of neighbors. You know, the reality is is that most people don't like to live around poor people. So what happens whenever poor people move into a community? Oftentimes, the people of wealth and mobility move out. They shun them. And so what is the result? Concentrations of poverty, which are oftentimes going to lead to crime, they're oftentimes going to lead to drug abuse. They're going to lead to a whole culture where everybody growing up in that culture is probably going to be perpetuated in the cycle because they have no access. So that's really what wealth is. It's connections and access to opportunities and resource. Probably many of us heard this growing up. It's not what you know, it's who you know, right? That's the real capital in life. And so if you're a poor person, you don't have that. You don't have friends. You're isolated. So here's one of the most fundamental ways to do justice. Become a friend of someone unlike you. Become a genuine, real friend of someone in a different social class from you. Not to fix them. Because you're not going to fix them. And here's what you're going to realize as you become a real friend. This is not just about what I'm going to bring them. This is about what they're going to bring me. Anybody that chooses to live in this way is going to find out I get far more blessing than anything that I give. So simply by becoming the friend of someone, you're doing justice. And then secondly this, speak up and become an advocate. 31, 8 through 9, look at what it says here. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. The heart of the call of justice is to advocate, to use what resources and connections you have to help people rise up out of their situation. A lot of us don't think about that, but we, many of us, have connections. We have access and things that we can tap into to help people. As a community, we can look at our, we can look at Dade County, we can look at what, are, what laws here are unjust, what systems here are broken, what ways are people not getting the education that they deserve? What can we do as a church to speak up and to advocate and to empower people who are in poverty, who are in need? Fundamental ways to live out this calling to justice. Now, let me tell a story, kind of illustrate this a little bit. I've shared this before. Uh, formerly, I was a pastor at Rock Creek Fellowship, and there was a lady in the community near our church. Her name was Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth was poor. She had been poor all of her life, raised in poverty. Uh, she, was, um, she was suffering physically. She had so many health problems, maybe as many as anybody I've ever seen. Those often go hand in hand, health problems and poverty. Uh, her head was kind of cocked to the side. She had a spinal um, deformity. She was always in pain. Uh, she smoked like a chimney. Of course, I probably would too if I had all of that. Uh, she was addicted to pain pills. Uh, she could be mean as a rattlesnake. Uh, she, when you would go to visit her, she would go on and on and on about her problems. And it was really hard to hang in there with those things. It was not fun. But Elizabeth loved Jesus. She knew Jesus. And there came a point in Elizabeth's life where she got really sick, and she went into the hospital, and her husband filed for divorce whenever she was in the hospital. Um, Her children were trying to get all of her assets, and she literally had no one. All of her family, they were out. They didn't want any part of it. They were like, hey, she's... She's done all these bad things in her life. She can fend for herself. And so for the first time, I kind of got an inside view of what it's like when you're poor and you have no assets. I mean, we walked with her. She spent six months at Erlanger. And what I realized really quickly is she does not get the same care that I get at Erlanger. In fact, we would see the people on, on staff there mistreating her. And so what we learned as a church is that God was calling us to be a people that would be her family and surround her and advocate for her and fight for her. We put together a team of people that would go visit her, that would try to handle all of her medical bills, sorting through all of that stuff. Uh, we helped her to move back home. Uh, we walked alongside with her. We, we were able to find her uh, legal counsel. Uh, and it was incredibly taxing. But it was probably a greater blessing to us than it was even to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, we didn't change Elizabeth. But we did justice. And we learned more about God's heart through our caring of Elizabeth. See, the reality is, is if you want to live for justice, it will cost you. It will bring suffering into your life. It will be a whole lot harder than living for your vacations and your experiences And yourself. It'll be a whole lot harder. It's going to cost you. But it's worth it. So the question is how do we do that? How do we find the motivation and the energy and the power to live a life of justice, especially when you don't have to, when it's so easy in a culture to live for yourself? And here's the answer, and I think you know the answer it's the gospel. It's the gospel. As we experience the grace of the gospel, it creates a heart of justice for us. How does that work? just think about the gospel. The gospel comes to us and it says, you by nature are utterly poor before God. Spiritually speaking, we by nature are utterly destitute before the Lord, alienated from Him by our sin with no hope. With no ability to bridge that gap, no way, no ability to reconcile ourselves to the Father. We're orphans by nature from the Father, excluded from His family. And we have nothing in us, no goodness in us that would motivate God to say, Looky there, I really want them on my team. I really need them. God needs nothing from us. But yet, here's the reality God has chosen to give up His Son. So that we might come into His family. Jesus chose to live the glories and the comforts and the riches of heaven to go all the way down into the poverty of the cross, so that we might be reconciled to the Father, so that all of our sin and poverty and alienation might be removed. That's the gospel. You see, the more deeply the gospels at work in your heart, the more that you look at a poor person, you say, "That's me." There's not an ounce of difference between us. When I look at an alien, an immigrant, and I say, that's me. I was an alien. I was foreign to God. You know, God actually says that to Israel in the Old Testament. You were aliens. So I want you to love the aliens among you. You see, it's only as we get the gospel and experience the riches of His grace that it creates a life of justice. That it creates this life that says, that's me. And yet God has pursued at the greatest cost to himself. He has pursued me. He has reconciled me. He has made me rich through Jesus. I've been brought into his family. Are you experiencing that? Is that real for you? Does it move your heart to joy? Because it's got nothing to do with anything we've ever done. It's all entirely the work of Jesus in our place. See, that's grace. We don't deserve anything from God. And it's so freeing when you get to the bottom of that because we so easily think, well, I'm kind of a little bit better than them, so God kind of favors me a little bit. It's so freeing when you give all that up and you say, I deserve nothing from God. And yet, He has lavished grace on me. To the degree that moves your heart, is the degree to which you will live for justice. That's the point Jesus is making in Matthew 25. So this morning we get the opportunity to come to the table, to come to the communion table. This table is the king's table. Sometimes we don't realize the privilege of communion. We get invited to the table of the king of the universe to feast with him. Now, here's the reality. None of us have any business at this table. There is no reason one of us should be able to come to this table. You know what Jesus comes to us and says? Knowing everything that's true about us, everything that's true about us, he comes to us and says, my body is given for you. My blood was shed for you. So come to my table. If you're in union with Jesus... You have the amazing reality to come to his table and be fed by the king. The honor and the privilege of eating at the king's table, no matter what you have, or no matter what you've done. And this table points us ahead to one day that the Bible says God is going to fill the whole earth with a feast, a huge feast. And you know who's going to be at that feast? The poor and the lame, and the broken, and the outsider, and me, and you, together as one at his table. So as you're taking communion today, let it point you ahead to that great hope that one day, as the prophet Amos says, justice is going to roll down like a river, like a mighty river, and the whole earth will be filled with justice. Let this table create that longing in you. So as we come to the table, let's pray a prayer of confession together to prepare our hearts to come. If we could bring that up. Okay, so let's pray together. And let me just encourage you. It's not just something that we read. This is a prayer that we come together as one to confess before the Lord, to prepare our hearts to receive His grace. So let's pray together. Merciful God, you pardon all who truly repent and turn to you. We humbly confess our sins and ask your mercy. We have not loved you with a pure heart, nor have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not done justice, loved mercy, or walked humbly with you, our God. Have mercy on us, O God, in your loving kindness, in your great compassion, cleanse us from our sins." Now take a few moments to confess silently your sins.